on this blustery evening, and we thank you for a building in which we can gather, and we can meet, and we can be warm, and we can be physically comfortable, and we just pray that you would speak to us tonight as we look at probably the most influential building in uh, the entire Bible, for sure the Old Testament, and we thank you for your word and your faithfulness and your fulfilling of promises. We just pray that you would speak to us and through us as we intersect in our discussion groups and allow this text to resonate and transform us in the way that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not Tom. Some of you might be like, well, duh, we know who you are. Uh, but some of you might actually not know who I am, um, so I fill in for Tom every once in a while. I do uh, work here. My name's Eric. So I will be filling in for Tom uh, a few times this fall, um, and then I know there's been a lot of questions, speculation, what's going to happen with the youth group and Abby and everything, so I will be teaching in the youth group um, starting... I guess technically after MEA, um, and so I'll be teaching over there, or I'll be teaching here when Tom needs me to teach over here. So that is the answer to that. Also, as I was eating dinner tonight, I was thinking about the effort that it takes to come to Wednesday night. I walked into my house, and I was like, man, I'd like to just go start a fire in the basement and sit down and not go back to church. Um, but I didn't have a choice. So um, I want to encourage you and commend you, and even if you show up late, I know a lot of people give me a hard time because I harass people that show up late. It's all in good fun. Um, I know that you uh, put a premium effort on getting here, uh, and there's certainly a lot of other things like the comfort of your homes that could uh, keep you away, especially you with kids. So Double thumbs up to you all for being here. And I'll try not to be distracted by the chaos of the wind outside. So here we are, uh, 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, probably the most riveting two chapters minus Leviticus um, in the whole Old Testament, um, made better certainly by Max. Uh, and then I found this awesome 3D rendering tour um, on the YouTube, and so I think it's actually a great visual experience, and also when you throw in Max, it's kind of like a short film. Um, I should have made popcorn. We have a popcorn maker. Basically, I'm stalling um, so that everyone makes sure they, they catch it out. But So we're going to, um, Max is going to read chapter 6. We're going to check out the video of the the overall rendering of the temple, and then we will uh, break it down. So, here we go. 1 Kings 6. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames, 
He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it, he lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built twenty cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was forty cubits long, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was twenty cubits long, twenty cubits wide, and twenty cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary, and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work, 
He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. All right. Woo! If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what does. Um, so if you want a, another recounting of the building of the temple, Second Chronicles chapter 3 and chapter 4, um, it's an interesting cross-comparison of what is the author of Chronicles trying to communicate through the description of the temple uh, and Solomon building of the temple and leaving out certain things and adding in certain things, and, and why would there be slightly different um, variations? First of all, what we have to understand is that uh, this is not a blueprint for a rebuilding of the temple. So the instruction here is not so that if we decided, let's go old school and build ourselves a temple, we could. It simply is to try and to communicate Uh, to the reader or to the listener, the detail in which it was constructed, the care in which it was constructed, and how elaborate the interior of uh, the structure was. Obviously, with the talk of all of the gold and the gold and the gold and the gold. Um, But if you want to read 2 Chronicles uh, 3 and 4 to kind of just compare and contrast, we're not going to do that tonight. You're welcome. Um, but you could certainly follow along in that. Also of note, if you remember back um, to when we studied Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, there is some um, very detailed discussion of, so right now uh, things are great for the Israelites. Remember, he's building uh, this during a peacetime. David could not do that because he was doing it during... He was reigning during a wartime. But if you read Jeremiah chapter 7, you see kind of fast-forwarding to the end result of what takes place, what happens to the Israelites, and where they take this awesome um, gift that God has given them and kind of flip it on its head. Also, we are remembering the fact that uh, they are moving from a tent. So their church was a tent, tabernacle, um, into this amazing uh, wood and stone structure. It's a little bit like if, if we just had an amazing structure, then it'll be much easier for us to worship and remain obedient, much like we were all sold a bill of goods. If the twins just had Target Field, and they could get out of the Metrodome, we would have a World Series. And we all know how that uh, has turned out. Paul Molitor had a good run, I guess. So, we're going from tent um, to permanent structure. If you've ever been a renter, uh, and then you go to owning a home, similar kind of thing. So, we are permanent, grounded structure in which they, God is going to, quote-unquote, reside or the Ark of the Covenant will be able to reside in a place where they'll be able to come and offer sacrifices on a corporate level of worship. It is the showing of permanence 
um, for the nation of Israel that they are building this structure. What we need to keep in mind is within the ancient Near Eastern world, this was not the only structure that existed as a temple. And in fact, there is a temple that was unearthed in 1955, um, the Ain Dara Temple in uh, Syria, near the Turkish-Syria border, north of present-day Aleppo, about 42 miles. And it predates the Solomon Temple, but it is almost an exact replica in size and scope. And obviously the, the structure itself is pretty much gone. Um, but in the 50s, when they uncovered it, the first thing they uncovered was this giant sphinx structure. And when they started digging, they found this amazing elaborate temple, which is, a, is a, almost a replica of um, the Solomon's Temple. And so there's common knowledge that if you were going to build a temple in the ancient Near Eastern world, it would look similar to this type of structure. Now, for example, when we think about how big the structure was, it was approximately 90 feet long. So from the exterior wall to this curtain is about 90 feet. And it was 30 feet wide, which is from um, about this aisle to the windows. And then it was 45 feet tall, which is about twice as tall as uh, the ceiling. So when you think in terms of this temple, there's all this discussion, there's all this elaborate thinking about, wow, this must have been a grand place. Yes, it was, but it wasn't like this behemoth of a structure. It was very succinct and compact and elaborate. So, let's look at the text. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. If you flip with me to Exodus chapter 12, second book, Exodus 12.40, we kind of see this long arc of uh, what has taken place within the history of the nation of Israel. So think about this, in the 480th year, keep that in mind, and then we go to Exodus 12, and the Lord, uh, oops, verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept by the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. So the Israelites, in their history, they celebrate this 430 years that they spent in Egypt, and now they go through the entire Exodus, 480 years of not having a quote-unquote permanent home, even after they come into the Promised Land. They haven't laid down permanent temple roots, which is what they're doing now. And and how do we come up with this 480 years? Well, there's this one, probably the strongest theory, is that there are 12 generations between now, or between what took place, going backwards to the time of Moses. And so we're seeing this connection of a generation is approximately 40 years, 12 generations since Moses. How do we arrive at 480 years? 
there you go, 12 tribes, all of that. So there is some numerical significance in the 480 years uh, when we tie it in with the 430 years of Exodus. And if you add 430 and 480, you get 910, which I don't know if that has any bearing on anything. Just sound like a good math problem. So 480 years, they've been waiting for this thing to happen. And now it is finally happening. And we also get this marker in the fourth year of Solomon's reign reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And he gets into this detail um, about how the structure was built, and Tom talked a little bit um, about uh, the quarry process and where the stone came from last week in chapter 5. In verse 7 it says, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Which is great, right? It's like silent building. Well, not really. Why is that a thing of importance? Well, in Exodus and also in Deuteronomy chapter 27, if you flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, we get this first or reiteration of um, a building code, shall we say. A building code that stuck, stuck around for 480 years, and we thought some of the codes in Nisswa were outdated. So Deuteronomy 27, 5 and 6, And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. So they think back to this ancient 480-year-old building instruction, and they are following the letter of God's instruction, even though it is eons, not eons, but centuries old. Because what we're trying to see here, and there's all this, what, what is the author trying to communicate? You know, why do we care how Solomon built the temple and what he built the temple with, and why do we care about his house? Um, that's what I, I wrote, read, read these two chapters in preparation the first time. And when I got done reading 6 and 7, I wrote, so what, question mark, underlined in my Bible. Thanks, Tom. Enjoy your vacation. I'll try and make some significance of a building project. But what is it that sticks out is the obedience of the Israelites to how they built the structure. Because to them, what they're building is a significant, holy place. And it wasn't just a building. It was a place where God resided. It was God's residence. And again, within the ancient Near Eastern world, there was this belief, there was a few different beliefs. One, when you build a a temple to a god, small g, you cannot cut or damage the stone in its constructing using iron tools. So you say, okay, this is a bit of a similar feel within the ancient Near Eastern world. 
also within the ancient Near Eastern world was the belief that if you build a temple and you're actually complete it, so you, you finish the project, which if you own a house, I'm not sure that ever happens, but um, you finish the project, that is a clear symbol and communication that your God, again, small g, has blessed you. And so for Solomon to finish the temple, it's communicating to the broader ancient Near Eastern world that God has stamped his stamp of approval on the Israelites and on Solomon as um, their king. So what they're doing here, yes, is unique to us, but within the broader uh, parameters of the ancient Near Eastern world, when the Israelites build this temple, no one says, oh my word, we never thought of doing such a thing. This is what people did. So we get all of these different measurements. Um, the lowest story in chapter six, or verse 6, and um, the entrance of the lowest story was on the south side of the house. So he built the house, and he finished it, and he made the ceiling house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. And you think, all right, let's move on. <laughs> and we get this interjection of the next few verses, 11, 12, and 13, where commentators say, wait, what just happened? Because we could skip, we could literally take out um, 11, 12, and 13, and we would read from 10, which I just finished, uh, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar, to 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Seems to flow very easily. And yet 11, 12, and 13 provide this interesting um, kind of prophetic sidebar. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that Concerning this house that you are building, if you walk in this, my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So we've gone back and we've referenced it and we've referenced it and we've referenced it. But the building of the temple is a fulfillment of the promise basically the promise that was given to David. We remember back 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, 12 through 16, and David is promised that his, or uh, assured that his uh, offspring will build this temple. And so we get this reiteration of this promise for Solomon and his people, and it's very much a conditional clause. If you do this, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. Well, if we flip to Jeremiah chapter 7, we're like, yeah, that didn't happen. And so what happens to them? And it's interesting, right in the middle of this chapter on building this elaborate, ornate house of worship, whether it was interjected after the fact or whether it was a part of the original text, there is this instruction of don't think because you have this building 
things are going to go well for you. The most important thing for the Israelites to do is to be obedient to God and to his statutes the rest of their life. And he says, if you will obey my commands. He says nothing about the temple. He says nothing about if you make sure to keep this place looking nice, keep the blood off the floor, make sure you keep the drywall in place, make sure you keep the lawn cut nice, carpet cleaned. That isn't the point. The point is that I'm blessing you. I'm giving you this place. But what I most want from you is obedience. And in Jeremiah 7, it's like, why are you not being obedient to me? (laughs) Because the temple stands there for a very long time. But the issue is not the temple. So when we look at 6 and 7, the temple, yes, is an important part. It's a signature moment. Some would say it is literally the peak of Solomon's kingship. Uh, But the most important part that they have to continue to be reminded of is you must keep my commands and obey my statutes. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So it is of utmost importance for them to not just go to the temple, but that they would keep their commands and their statutes and their laws the rest of the time. And then he goes on, you're like, okay, verse 14, Solomon built the house and finished it. Whoop, done. Why does he keep talking? So he lines the walls of the house and he covers the inside with wood and he builds uh, 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards from cedar from the walls and he built this within as the inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The interesting thing about the holy of holies is it's built... I don't know if you could tell from the um, rendering. It's built as a perfect cube. And again, that was another ancient Near Eastern practice. When they built a uh, holy place, it would be built as a perfect cube because that is a perfect um, dimension. And if that's where God is going to reside on earth, then it needs to be perfect. Um, the inner sanctuary, verse 19, uh, he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid it an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And then in verse 23, he makes these two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of the wing to the tip of the other. What is a cherub? Well, it is a bit um, like a liger, except it's a, I was trying to come up with a great name, 
for this. It's like a legal. It's a human head, a lion body, and eagle wings. I mean, is that not the most amazing creature you could ever think of? I think I would have gone with something other than a human face, um, but I wasn't designing this. And so there are these two cherubim that are sitting protecting and the ark, in theory, and they are 16 by 16. So they're 16 feet tall and 16 feet wingspan, and there's two of them, and they're touching um, wings, which, again, you saw in the, the video thing. Uh, 29. He carved uh, engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold the inner and outer rooms. If we haven't gotten the picture, he did not spare any expense. His FF&E budget was through the roof, gold here, gold there, gold here, gold there, gold everywhere. And it brings up this interesting uh, question of why? Why is it so important for this uh, temple, this holy place, to be so elaborate and ornate. I mean, the percentage of people that actually go into one of the rooms, let alone into the Holy of Holies, is minuscule within the life of Israel. And so why is it that important? And what we have to realize is our current understanding and mentality of a church is not in play. So a church, we don't say temple equals modern-day church in the sense that the temple was where God resided, and so it was we're going to do the best for God and make this this ornate place so that when you come into the presence of the temple, you are in awe of who God is. And throughout church history and in certain other uh, historical traditions, you go into churches and you're like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, Michelangelo didn't paint this ceiling, so no one walks in here and says, well, that ceiling is amazing. But it's this awe-inspiring place of worship so that when you come to this place, when you come to the temple, I mean, you mean business. You don't show up in your jeans you don't show up in your flip-flops. This is, a, this is a serious business. Because part of the temple was to call the people forward and so that they would come with this reverence and respect and awe of who God is. That's why it sat high up on the hill and kind of summoned all the people. So you'd look and you'd be like, That God, he's amazing. But today, we come in here and we're like, meh. Somebody earlier said they, uh, they've had an experience bringing somebody to church and they're like, not that impressed. <laughs> because this isn't what is supposed to be impressive. What is supposed to be impressive is not, wow, look at all the windows. 
and look at the trees, you're like, that looks like my backyard. What is to be impressive is the experience of the church. And so today we have the church, which is not the building, it's the people. But for them, the temple was the temple, and so it was of utmost importance. And that is where God resided. The interesting thing, though, when we, when we think about this, is they missed it. Okay, We think of these pendulum swings. And so the pendulum for them swings to the belief that God sits in the temple. That's where God is at. That means God is not in my house. I can do whatever I want. So these people miss out on the fact that God is existing among them. And I think sometimes we swing the other way and we say God is everywhere, so why do I need to come together to a corporate worship experience? Because God is everywhere. And again, what these people miss is they thought, oh, now we have the temple, we're special, and in essence, we can summon God on our behalf whenever we want. But as one commentator says, no human compulsion can command Yahweh's presence. No human compulsion can command Yahweh's presence. So it's not because, oh, you built this temple, now I'm going to be there, and so here I am. Again, getting back to the importance of the obedience. In the same way, have you ever had an experience with God, and you're like, all right, let me think about what I did. Okay. Last Sunday was a powerful experience, and I had two eggs for breakfast, and then I um, stopped at Stonehouse. I had on that pair of jeans and those boots, and I had on that sweater, and I sat in that chair. And if I do that again, I know that I can have that same experience with God because I can do dink to dink to dink to dink to dink, and that's what's going to happen. And that's not the case. So this belief that, oh, we are special now and we have the secret code to God because we have the temple is not the case. So it takes him seven years and six months to build. It stood for uh, 400 years and it was destroyed around 587 uh, B.C. So stuck around for about 400 years and then it was eventually destroyed. Remember that, seven years, six months. Then we get into chapter 7. 1 Kings 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars, and it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. 
and he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell, in the other court back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sword with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord, and the vestibule of the house. All right. So, takes him seven and a half years to build God's house, and it takes him 13 years to build his own house. Now, there's some significant grammatical working here to emphasize the fact that Solomon's care for his own house takes priority over his care for God's house. So we start to see this interjecting of the author and trying to communicate Solomon in, in 6 is on the top. Okay? That's why a lot of commentators say Solomon's best moment was when he finishes the temple and everything thereafter starts to be a struggle. Now, we are in the middle of this interesting section from 3 to the end of 9. And then somebody said earlier, uh, after 9, that's when it really starts to get good. Okay, So, one more week of pain, and then it really gets good. So, Solomon takes all of this great care to build his own house. He takes almost twice as long to build his own house as he does to build God's house. Now, we have to understand when we talk about house, we are talking about compound in which he has built. So it's not just he builds himself one house, but within his compound structure, there are multiple places. We see this place of judgment, um, the hall of pillars, the hall of the throne is where he announces his judgments. Um, and then we see this interesting nod to the fact that Solomon, uh, in verse 8, uh, that he makes his own house where he has to dwell in the other court back of the hall. And then he makes a house for his wife. And his wife. And his other wife. And his other... We'll get to that. But it was all of these separate buildings in this massive complex uh, because Solomon, well, he's important if you haven't noticed. And he's going to make sure that he has this awesome place. Now, before we get too down on Solomon, part of what Solomon has to do as king is execute kingly duties. And so he needs part of these places to be king and to execute his kingly duties. But also, we say, I mean, come on, man. Really? Like, that's what you needed? Like, your priority 
was so great that it took you twice as long to build your house, and did you really need to make it as elaborate as you did? And so that's the question we ask. What, did it need to be as elaborate as it was? Because after all, what is Solomon doing in his house? Well, he's doing a lot of entertaining. I mean, he is the king after all. He has uh, many wives. And it makes us ask ourselves, where are the priorities here? <laughs> where are the priorities in the time skew here between the construction of God's temple or God's house and Solomon's house? So we're going to finish uh, with the furnishings. And we're like, oh wait, we're not done with the temple? Oh, we thought you might like some more detail. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze, 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital, and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar, and he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection which was beside the lattice work. There were two hundred pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for ten cubits compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held two thousand baths. He also made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames, and on the panels that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. 
Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings and its panels were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand, there was a round band half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, its stays and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surfaces of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike, of the same measure and the same form. And he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held forty baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the four hundred pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work, to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars, the ten stands and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zarethan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold, for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple, Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. All right. Again, there is an immense amount of detail here. And for us, in some ways, we kind of just glaze over, like, big deal. But within the history of the nation of Israel, they're able to create this image and a recounting of exactly what the temple looked like. So we know they're going to go into exile. And as they recount the temple, they've got such great detail that they can almost see it in their own mind through this vivid, vivid description of all of these things and all of the carvings and all of the whatnots. And at the end here, we get this interesting kind of sidebar in verse 51, or kind of passing thought. And Solomon brought in the things that David, 
his father had dedicated the silver, the gold, and the vessels and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Well, in 2 Samuel 8, David says, or the, the author um, of 2 Samuel says, verse 10, uh, Toy sent his son uh, Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadzar and defeated him. And For Hadadzar had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he had subdued. So David's things are going in. Solomon's been holding on to them. These are family heirlooms and treasures that David has captured and collected and dedicated to the Lord. And so it's not just, oh yeah, and then he put in some family heirlooms. They were significant things. What I would highly, highly recommend, so I mentioned I'm going to be teaching for the youth. They're going through First and Second Samuel, mostly Second Samuel, Life of David, First and Second Samuel. If you haven't read First and Second Samuel recently, I would highly recommend reading slash listening to it as soon as you can. So what I've been doing is put in the earbuds and walk down the trail for 30 minutes, listening to the Bible on my phone. If you get the ESV app, it'll read to you. He's not as good as Max, but it's free. And you get to see this picture of David's life, and then you see these references in Solomon's life to David's life and the connection and where Israel has been and where they are, and it's this wonderful picture. So, highly recommend, for sure, Second Samuel, but if you're going to read Second, you... You don't watch Back to the Future 2 before you watch 1. I mean, come on. Since that's, yeah, never mind. So, all of this detail, for some of us, we're like, boring. But when we start to drill down and see the importance of what is trying to be communicated by the author, we see some very interesting things that cause us to ask, hopefully, some very interesting questions in your discussion groups. So, grab a Bible and go there now.